In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, you have revealed to us in creation who you are. And you've revealed to us in your word that you've revealed to us in creation who you are. Let us not miss who you are, Lord. I pray that you would give us understanding. Teach us to fear you, to revere you, to worship you, to honor you, to glorify you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the title to this book is Genesis. And that word just means beginning or origins. The question that, that, uh, that you might have, or if you don't, I have, well, what is Genesis the beginning of? If it's called the beginning, what, what's it the beginning of? Well, in one sense, we all know this. Genesis is the beginning of everything, right? All living things find their origin story here in Genesis. All non-living things find their origin story here in Genesis. But if I were to ask you, or if you were to ask me, what is Genesis about? I wouldn't say creation. Rather, I would say redemption. In Genesis... God begins to show us who he is. He begins to show us that he is a redeeming God. So Genesis is the beginning of the story of redemption. In Genesis, we we meet God who always was and is. And then we see the beginning of humanity. We'll see that very soon in the next several weeks. And then very quickly... Right away, in fact, we see what happens to humanity. We see the beginning of human sin. And then there, at that moment, we begin to see God's redeeming work. We we, we begin to see God's eternal plan of redemption unfolding before us. He covers the shame of the man and woman, and then he promises that from the woman will come an offspring who will make all things right again. And we know that this was God's eternal plan. I use that word intentionally. It was his eternal plan because the Bible tells us it was God's eternal plan. Speaking of his own ministry, this is what the Apostle Paul says his calling is to. Look at Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. I'll put it up on the screen. Paul says, my ministry is to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. See that eternity there? 1 Corinthians 2.6 says very much the same thing, speaking of the cross of Christ. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages. For our glory. 
We saw in our call to worship in Ephesians 1.4. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Titus 1.2 says that God promised the hope of eternal life before the ages began. 2 Timothy 1.8-9 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So, when did God's plan of redemption begin? Before the ages began. Before the foundations of the earth. All of that was hidden in God, with God, before the ages, and it begins to be revealed in Genesis. That's what it's the beginning of. Down through the generations of humanity. This is what we see in Genesis. All these generations. All through these generations of humanity, every generation named in Genesis has someone unique that God is working through. Adam to Seth. Seth to Noah, Noah to Shem, Shem to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph. God's unfolding plan through all of those generations is the story of Genesis. But the ultimate goal of the Bible is to reveal to us God's glory and salvation through Christ. Because eventually, the offspring... The one that all those other generations, those other offspring were, were bringing about. The offspring, Jesus Christ, brings final salvation. And that is God's plan from before the creation of the world. And it all starts to be revealed in Genesis. Okay? Seeing how this works? But Genesis 1 starts with God. Who's God? And that's what we're going to seek to answer this morning. Who is this God who is there in the beginning of it all? Well, look at verse 1. In the beginning, God. Before creation, God was and is. God is eternal. That's what we see here at the beginning. At the very essence of who God is and what God is, is his existence. He has no beginning. God was before it made sense to even talk about beginning. He existed in the non-beginnable because he is eternal. And so he was there before the beginning and in the beginning. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So what does that tell us? God is the everlasting one. He is the eternal one. He is the presupposed one. He's the foundational truth of all reality. And this God, this is the God who makes himself known. That's the second thing that we learn about God here in Genesis 1.1. First, he's eternal. Secondly, he makes himself known. 
We see that in the second half of verse 1. Look at it with me. In the beginning, God did something. He created the heavens and the earth. Now, every child has this question, and it continues to be a question, and sometimes it never gets answered, and so we hold it as adults, but we are embarrassed to ask it. Here's the question. Why did God create? Why did he do this? Well, what I want to show you is that he did this so that he would make himself, so he could make himself known to creation. And and, and in order to get there, we have to ask some other questions. Here's the first one. Did God have to create? Was creation necessary? Did God have to create the heavens and the earth? No. He did not. God would have continued to be completely and fully God without this act of creation. He does not need creation. He doesn't need anything. When Paul, the Apostle Paul, is in Athens evangelizing the pagans, he tells them this. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God gains nothing from you and me. Or anything else in all creation. Rather, all creation, everything in the heavens and everything in the earth, and everything in between and underneath and above, all creation finds its source in God. He didn't have to create. And nothing was added to God because he created. It's not that God created and he got the, the creator God on his God scout sash. That, that, that doesn't make sense. Nor was anything taken from God when he created. Nothing was taken away from him through his act of creation. It's not that God gave creation some of his energy. And, and, and so then God became less energetic. He didn't take some of his substance and form creation out of it. No, God speaks creation into existence. That's important because that is contrasted to the mythology of the Babylonians and the Canaanites and the Egyptians that the Hebrew people who first received this book would have been familiar with. In all of those Stories and all those ancient Middle Eastern stories that the Hebrew people would have been surrounded by, creation comes from something in the gods. So, so maybe it's a body part of a god that becomes some aspect of creation. Or in some of the stories, a god is defeated in battle and then he's chopped up into pieces and his pieces are used to form the cosmos. Or, or maybe it is the spit of a god or some other vulgar bodily fluid from a God that is used to make stuff with. But Moses, led along by the Holy Spirit, is teaching the Hebrews in Genesis 1 at the very beginning who the God is that brought them out of Egypt and is bringing them into Canaan. And he's telling them that the true creation is not what the pagans are telling you. God does not give a part of himself or any parts of himself or any energy from himself in order to create objects. That would make him less. 
He was fully God before creation, and he continues to be the same God in his fullness after he speaks creation into existence. You're like, okay, but why did he create? Well, fundamentally, he created because it was his will to create. And that sounds simplistic, but bear with me, okay? God wanted to create, and so he did. That's actually more profound than we give it credit for. Think about it. God is almighty, he is perfect in power, and he is the only being who exists who can will something to happen, and it happens. When God willed creation to come from nothing, it happened. That's profound. No one else can do that. Not the richest, most powerful kings. No nation can do that. No collection of nations can do that. No multinational corporation can do that. Only God can will that, we, that creation would come from nothing, and it does. This is the very reason that God is worthy of worship. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Why is the Lord God worthy to receive glory and honor and power from us? Because for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You see it? By his will. God calls all things into existence by his will. God wills it, and it happens. Why? Why did God will to create? Well, the Bible will answer that question for us. God created for his purposes. For his purposes. We see that, we're going to see that in the next few weeks, just in the orderliness of creation. So as the days go on, day by day, there's evening and there's morning, the first day, the second day, and so forth. As creation comes into greater and greater form and order, Creation is then filled, plants, fish, birds, animals, and so forth, and then humanity, and then God rests. He rests when what he has intended to accomplish is accomplished. God has a purpose in what he does. He has a purpose in creation. He moves creation from formless and void to ordered and filled There's a divine purpose in all of it. He is accomplishing something. This is spelled out for us in Colossians 1, speaking of Jesus Christ. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and, look, for him. For him. It's his purposes. saw that Jesus, this is, of course, speaking of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son. And uh, as Tammy read for us in John 1, speaking of the same person, in the beginning was the Word, it's the eternal Son, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Paul and John are telling us the same thing here. The Son is God. But the point that I'm making, using these passages, is showing that God, Father, Son, and Spirit was accomplishing his purposes through creation. It's for him. 
It was all created through him and for him. But why? What purpose? To make himself known. To make his glory known. So, as we've seen, throughout all eternity, God was perfectly sufficient in and of himself. He's glorified in and of himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, but through creation, which, which he creates by his own will, for his own purposes, he makes his glory known to those outside of the Godhead. So Psalm 19 is, of course, the perfect verse for this, or the f- perfect passage for this, most well-known that attests to this. So you have the, uh, the psalmist says, the heavens, and remember the heavens are created by God, right? The heavens... Those heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The psalmist goes on, day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And what are they saying? Their voice goes throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. To do what? To proclaim God's glory. That's what creation is does, that's what creation is meant for, to proclaim God's glory. Isaiah, meditating on this very passage, says this in Isaiah 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Did you see that in Psalm? So that, so that all would hear, so that all would, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And then Isaiah says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint. He does not faint or grow weary. His Understanding is unsearchable. And we're going to see over the next several days that, uh, of creation here as we look uh, the next passages in the next coming weeks. But the sun and the moon and the stars, Moses tells us, all have a unique purpose. They, they, are, they are lesser kings, so to speak, assigned the work of governing the seasons and the days. But ultimately, their higher purpose in submission to the one true king is to declare the glory of God. That's what creation is meant for, to declare the glory of God, to proclaim God's power and authority so that no one can say, I didn't know. So that nobody, no human can say, I have not heard of the Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth can't say that because creation declares it. All see, all hear. So let's add it together. The eternal God, who is all-sufficient and perfect in himself, willed to create. And he did create for his good purpose. And his purpose was and is to make his glory known. And that tells us something about God. Because God makes himself known, we can conclude that God is relational. As we come to know him throughout Scripture, we find that he is Trinity. So in other words, he is eternally relational within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. But that attribute of God, that that eternal attribute of his, his triune nature is revealed to us, his relational Ness is revealed to us. It's made known to us through the act of creation. God's will is that he be 
known. Romans 1, 19-20 makes this very plain for us. For what can be known about God is plain to them, mankind. Because God has, look at this, shown it to them. You see the intentionality there? God has shown it to them. God wills to be known, and so he draws a picture for us, looks us in the face, holds up the picture, and it's a singing picture, a proclaiming picture that speaks in everyone's language. And what does it say? God is God and worthy of your praise. Paul continues, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, written in crown for you, speaking in your language for you, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. God has shown himself. He has revealed to us himself, not accidentally. It's not that he was hiding and we tripped and fell and our hand hit him. We went, oh, what's this? No, no, no. It's not a secondary thing, aspect of creation. It is intentional. God revealing himself to us is intentional. It is willful. That is the very purpose of creation. Of course, creation doesn't tell us everything about God, does it? We cannot comprehend God's fullness. We cannot comprehend everything about God. But he has revealed to us what we must know. His eternity, his power, his divine nature, his perfection, his oneness, his simplicity. That's all made known to us in creation. Because God has shown it to us in creation. Because God wills that we know him. All that God has created, he created so that we would know him. He has written knowledge of himself into every aspect of creation. Daytime pours out speech about God. Nighttime reveals knowledge about God. He's revealed his glory in all of creation. And when I say all of creation makes the glory of God known, I mean all of it. All of it. Look at verse 2 of our passage this morning. The earth was without form. And void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, I'll admit, this is a strange verse. Just read it. It's strange to our ears. It seems out of place for us. In fact, it's seemingly out of placeness causes all sorts of problems. Because we... Modern people in the modern scientific era approach this text with the wrong questions. We are looking, because of the the debates that are raging in our world, we're looking for how exactly the heavens and the earth came into being. What was the scientific process? We're kind of looking for Genesis 1 to say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and he did it this many thousand or million or billion years ago or whatever it was, and this is the way he created in each of those six days. And these are the elements from the periodic table that were first brought into being. 
And this is how the universe is set into motion. And this is the direction that it spins. And it's expanding or contracting. We approach the text from a scientific worldview because of the world that we live in. And in our... uh, I want to say selfishness. But our self-centeredness, maybe not intentional, but in our self-centeredness, we expect the text to speak in our scientific language. But instead, the text says, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, which makes us scientific types think, well, how can the heavens be heavens without stars? And planets, they're not created yet. How can the earth be the earth if it has no form? What shape is formless? And that leads to all sorts of debates about verse 1. And is verse 1 a summary of all of chapter 1 of Genesis? Or is verse 1 the first of the events of the rest of what happens in Genesis 1? And the reason why we have this problem is because of the existence of verse 2. We'd be fine without verse 2. Take it out and it removes nothing from us. But the people who this book was written for would not be okay if verse 2 was left out. Verse 2 to them is a comfort. Let me show you what I mean. You see, the Hebrews, they were not asking when the world was created. They weren't really even that interested in exactly how it was created. What they were asking was who created it. So they approached the text not with a fundamentally scientific historical worldview. They approached the text with a fundamentally theological worldview. And so that's the way the text is written. Out of all the gods, this is their question, out of all the gods that all of our neighbors are worshiping, which of those is truly worthy of worship? Which of the gods is creator? Which of the creation accounts is true? This was written for a people who had been, think about the timing of this. This is to the Hebrew people after they've been redeemed, rescued from Egypt. Remember, this was written by Moses. So Moses' lifetime is after their redemption from Egypt. They've been redeemed by the one true God, and that God is bringing them into the promised land. And in that geographical destination that they were heading to, There were a people with a whole host of their own gods. The the pagan Canaanites believed that all that is was started by three gods who were somehow manifest in something called the watery chaos of the deep. They called it the tohu and the bohu, the formless and the void. And this place was not created by the gods, but was eternal with the gods. And one of their stories is that two of those three gods who lived in that dark, watery, tohu and bohu chaos, they came together, two of them did, and they had children, and their children became all of the other elements of creation, land and sky, sun and moon, stars and planets and so on. And then the third god from that tohu and bohu, dark, watery, dark uh, chaos, teamed up with all of those children And they made war with the two parents. And those two parent gods 
wanted chaos to continue, and the rest of them wanted everything to be ordered. And the gods who desired order went out, and all of the gods went to their rightful places, and thus became the cosmos. But everything started in the dark, watery deep, the tohu and bohu, the formless and void. And so God, the one true God, knew that it was necessary to speak through Moses and tell God's people, in the beginning, God created all things, heaven and earth, and then he gets more specific, he created the deep. He created the emptiness. He created the disorder. He created the darkness. And at the beginning, the Spirit of God was hovering over all of that. The image there is a a mother bird hovering over her nest, brooding over her nest, bringing all things into their good purpose. But the point, point of verse 2, is that the one creator God is Lord over it all, even the formless and void. The tohu and the bohu. We see that in, in, in the Hebrew because Moses uses that language and he rips it straight out of the Canaanite stories. So, so when the Hebrews heard verse 2, they would have known immediately what is meant by this verse. They would have known and heard very loudly, the Canaanite gods are not gods. They are certainly not creator God. They would have heard in verse 2 that there was no war that brought creation into existence. The one true God is the only God. He doesn't compete against anyone. He doesn't compete against the chaos. He doesn't battle against the darkness. He doesn't battle against anything. He created everything. He's sovereign over all of it. He is Lord and he's king over all of it. God over all of it. Look at the way that the Lord puts it in Isaiah 45. Same truth. He says, I am the Lord. There's no other. I form light. And I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I'm the Lord who does all these things. That again. I form light and darkness. I make well-being and calamity. I'm the Lord who does it all. What God is teaching his people is that he is the God who is Lord above the Canaanites. He's Lord above the Babylonians. And he's Lord over the Egyptians because he's God over all. And so Isaiah 45, just like Genesis 1-2, is meant to be reassuring to God's people. Do you see it now? When when the Israelites were, were about to go into the land, and they're comparing their God, who they've never seen, And they're comparing the Lord, their God, to the Canaanite gods. And when they are afraid that the Canaanite gods would come to the defense of the Canaanite people, and then they would defeat the Israelites and the Lord God when they went into the land, that's that's, that's, that's their fear. Moses would have read aloud verses 1 and especially verse 2, and they would have been reminded of the good news that our God is the true God. Our God is Lord over all things. He created all things. He's Lord over us. He's Lord over the Canaanites. He's Lord over their land. He's Lord over their lives. He's Lord even over their idols. They do not stand a chance against our God. See how it's a reassurance? But listen, this is not just important for them. 
there, over there, way back when. You're not going into battle against the Canaanites. How does this help you? Well, in these two verses, when God tells us he created all things, things above, things below, then he tells us he created even the darkness and the disorder. We are to know he is also Lord over the darkness and disorder. He is Lord over all. He is Lord even over those circumstances in your life that seem chaotic and disordered. He's present in the chaos. He's working all things for his glory. Sometimes we are tempted in our blindness to think that somehow God is God over the good stuff, but some other dark entity rules over everything else. Like, God is God when a healthy baby is born. But somehow he either wasn't paying attention or some other entity got involved when there's a miscarriage, when there's a birth defect. We think God is good and he's in charge and we can trust him when our marriage is going well. But somehow he's absent or he's not really as much God when our marriage is in trouble. He's the good God, he's the good healer when the medical treatment is working. But he's powerless when the treatment fails. That's not true. And verse 2 tells us that's not true. We've got to see here that no matter what happens, come hell or high water, earthquake or wildfire, blessings or curses, good news or bad news, God is God over all. He's preeminent over all. Lord over all. He has no rival. He is before all things. And we don't mean that just in the sense that he was there before all things, even though he was. But, but in the sense that he is, his primacy is all-encompassing. He brought all that is into being, lightness and darkness, order and chaos. It is his purposes that are being served in creation. It is his will that brought creation into being. It's his glory that is seen in creation. It's his being that is being made known in all things because he's preeminent. Therefore, his purposes are known even in the chaos. His glory is known even in the darkness. What did Psalm 19 say? The night pours out knowledge of God. He's present even when all appears bleak. He is present even when all feels hopeless. Yes, there was darkness over the deep. The Spirit of the Lord was there, hovering over the darkness, bringing all things into order working it all together for God's good purposes. He's always there. And that's why, even in these first two verses of the Bible, we can see that Genesis is the beginning of redemption. Do you see it now? God is in the darkness because he created the darkness. But he will speak into the darkness and bring the light. And he's in the chaos and he's in the emptiness. But he will speak. 
and he will bring order, and he will fill, and it will be good, and good, and good, and very good. God brings something from nothing. He brings order from chaos. He fills emptiness with his goodness. That is what creation is. And we will see this pattern as you read the Bible all throughout Scripture. When the earth is covered with the dark waters of judgment after the flood, Noah sends out that dove who goes and hovers over the face of the deep. And through that door, that story, we see that God is bringing forth dry land out of that watery chaos. But it was God who sent the flood, wasn't it? He's Lord over the flood, he's Lord over the judgment, and he's Lord over the restoration as well. We saw in Matthew, in the darkness of Good Friday, God was bringing atonement for sins. But it was God who had sent the darkness. It was God who had planned for the death of his son. He's Lord over the judgment. He's Lord over the judgment of the Son on our behalf, and He's Lord over the redemption that is brought about. On Easter Sunday, in the dark of the morning, right before the dawn, God was resurrecting the Son. He is Lord over death. He's Lord over life. 2 Corinthians 4 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Here it is, that creation language. The glory of God comes with what is being created. To give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So in creation, God reveals not only that he is eternal, but that he is the one true God. And he reveals that his glory will be made known. And he reveals that he is Lord over all. Because he is Lord over all, he's Lord over you. You're accountable to him. This truth is known in the scriptures as the eternal gospel. The eternal gospel. God is king and he's worthy of worship. God is king and we are accountable to him. We see this message at the beginning of the Bible here in verses 1 and 2. And we see it at the end of the Bible as well. Revelation 14. Look at Revelation 14.6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel, there it is, to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, here's the announcement of the eternal gospel, fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. What is the eternal gospel? Fear God and give him glory. For he is Lord over all. He is greater. He's king. He's judge. You're accountable to him. Worship him. Give him glory. Now, if you're asking, why is that a gospel? That doesn't sound like good news. Very good news. Because he is a good God. He is a redeeming God who brings order from chaos. He rules over all things, and he makes himself known to us so that we would know him, so that we could enjoy him forever. In Genesis, for the Hebrews, that watery deep to them is the place where the gods of the Canaanites dwelled. But God created that place, and he rules over it, and he will provide for them, and he will protect his people. In Revelation, at the end, 
Right before Revelation 14, we see that there is a great watery deep, the great sea, and out of the sea a beast emerges to persecute Christians. But the eternal gospel, the eternal good news is that God rules over the sea. He is the God who made the heaven and the earth, including the sea. God is in control. So he's Lord and King even over the beast who persecutes Christians. God is in control. He is sovereign over all. It is a delight to worship him. It is your purpose to worship him, to glorify him forever. Amen. Let's pray and thank him. Lord, you made all things, and we praise you for that. Some of us, Lord, struggle to trust you with all things.